Okay, so welcome to What's Hot in Indie RPGs 2018. My name is Sophistry Richard. I'm the MC for this particular panel. This is the hour of the show where we get to talk all about those weird and crazy niche indie RPGs that come out. I've given you a couple of handouts that just kind of give you a taste of what's happened during the year and some of the indie RPGs that have come out. But really, what I want to hear from is this panel, the games that are currently interesting them, what kind of trends they see happening over the year, and then also finally maybe a hint of what games they're looking forward to to come out in 2019 or beyond. So with no further ado, what I'm going to do is introduce Rob at the end, and then I'll ask Rob to talk through the game that, that is interesting him right now. So Robert Carnell is a role player, gamer, writer, and critic who has appeared on five of the past six What's Hot panels at Dragon Meat over the years. He puts this down to having compromising material on the panel moderator from a Nordic LARP in a Russian hotel room. Yeah, don't do that, kids. Don't do that. <laughs> it can go wrong. So the game that I've probably been playing most of and thinking most of this year is not one that came out this year, but it's called The Clay That Woke by Paul Seeger. So originally when it came out, it was already a pretty interesting game. It's kind of set in an ancient crumbling city within a huge impenetrable jungle and society that's in decline. And there's a legend that these flowers will bloom if the decline is not terminal but simply a, a phase so the flowers will bloom if a new era is dawning which already kind of sounds like our present moment to me a lot you know we kind of talk a lot about decline and where we're going in the future into this are introduced the concept of minotaurs which is what you play in the game so the minotaurs are allegedly drawn for the, the mud they're always male they breed true with humans but they represent a minority within the population about a sixth of the city and so when the game came out, I kind of thought it was a game mostly about masculinity and about the nature of what it means to be a good man, the idea of toxic masculinity in there, the idea that these creatures are much more powerful, they're stronger, more aggressive than humans, but they choose to live within a society and within a set of rules. In fact, it's a game that's packed with metaphors, and the more you kind of play it with different people, you kind of unpack all these things. There's this aspect of them being in the minority, and they have a code of conduct called silence, which they follow, which allows them to be a minority group within a larger community that is scared of them. And then on top of that as well, the, the way that you kind of portray the humans in the game is that ideally you're looking for this expression of what I think the game calls esoteric thinking, which is like a magical thinking. So the humans have very strange ways of thinking and getting things done. And to some extent, they believe that whatever they are doing is somehow helping what they want to happen. And I think, again, if you look at the political moment at the, at the moment where declarations of what you want to be true are as good as having a cohesive idea of why that's going to happen because you made a declaration, it feels like really super relevant in a way that keeps rewarding any investment in it. And so the original game had a quite complex resolution mechanism. You had wooden counters that you drew from a bag, but there is a, a lightweight powered by the apocalypse version called Minotaur World that is in playtest that I've been... Uh, yeah, it's obvious when you think about it, which I've been playtesting, and, it, and it's really good. It's It's got all the aspects of the original game, the strangeness, the idea of abiding by a code of conduct and having to decide what is morally just and right in society and for yourself, but with a really simple apocalypse fail forward mechanism that kind of really fits the original tone of the game. And 
I'd love to play it and talk more about it. Next to Rob is James Mullen. James Mullen has designed more games than he knows what to do with. To say he's a prolific GM is a gross understatement, and he's been a core member of the Milton Keynes role-playing club, the Birmingham Indie Games, and also London Indie Meets as well. So James, so what game is exciting you at the moment? I've become... Well, let, let me uh, prelude this statement by saying, first, I am not a fan of D&D. So games appear to have that market key upon them initially put me off. So a game about elves fighting amongst each other, like high elves and dark elves, was not instantly a game like, oh yeah, must do that. But the Spire is actually a lot more than that. There's some pretty edgy metaphors in there to do with what's the difference between a freedom fighter and a terrorist. But essentially you are the defenders of your homeland. It has been taken over. Your homeland is this Spire, this incredibly tall structure that was once yours, and now the invading high elves have claimed it, and you've, become, you've been relegated basically a slave class within the society. But it brings in a lot of, of colour to this. The rulebook is essentially laid out like a gazetteer. You know, each character class introduces a new, a new schism or a new social group, and it takes a spin on all the traditional character classes, like the fighting class is there to defend their favourite pub, basically, which, cheers to that. But it essentially just lets you create a cell that is fighting for their freedom. And how far you want to take that morally is the question for you and your group to answer. You know, maybe you're happy to draw graffiti on the walls, maybe you think assassination is justified. You'll have to deal with the fallout of your moral choices throughout the game, because anything you can do can create a type of stress for your character that could, you know, penalise them socially, financially, physically. It all builds back into the narrative. Ideally, you want to play it over a long number of sessions, but even in a one shot, you get a real feel for the game. It's like, how far do we go? What measures do we take against these high elves? Knowing ultimately that you're probably going to lose, that your actions will lead to your death. That's like almost encoded into the game. So yeah, it's that like, it has almost like a D&D skin, but they've taken away the concept of the dungeon and replaced it with this. Well, you know, you can have these adventures, but your goal is to free your nation from its oppressors. How far will you go? Great, thank you, James. Moving down is Eunice Hong. In 2012, Eunice's partner invited her on holiday. That holiday was to Indianapolis in late July, early August. <laughs> Some people may know where this is leading. That holiday, of course, was Gen Con. She's no longer with the partner, but she loves the <laughs> Even more, so she's a true indie gamer, having never played D&D, Pathfinder, Traveler, or Shadowrun, instead diving straight into the GMless, zero-prep, satellite indie games that she is still consumed by. She is now running the volunteer team for the Crafty Games Studio at Gen Con every year and she's also the sole remaining organiser and host for London Indie RPG Meetup. Thank you very much for that little dig. Right, being the only one not smart enough to take a quick step back along with everybody else uh, when life started happening. So Eunice, what's the uh, game that you're exciting you at the moment? Yes, thank you. Um, as mentioned, I am very heavily into a very niche of an already niche area. So zero prep, GMless, stat light. If you don't even have dice, I'm all for it. Bring it on. So the game that I'm actually interested in or have been playing more recently is one that, again, like Rob's, came out a few years back. It's called Fall of Magic. And Fall of Magic is possibly one of the light, world lightest games I've ever come across. It's played on a scroll and you unroll the scroll as you move through this landscape on your journey. You are a group of people who are following the Magus, who is dying, on his journey or her journey or 
it's very vague, to the sort of the end of their journey where hopefully they will either bring back magic or magic will fall. Let's see what happens at the end. And basically the magic is draining out of the world and it's your job to get the mages to the end of their journey to find it. The only bits of character generation that you actually have in the game, obviously you find out more as you go along, but the only bits of character generation you start with is pick a name from this list, pick your job, like your role from this list, the job title, you know, and you have a location that goes with it. That is literally it. I'm not kidding. You have three words that are your character generation and then you build upon that and as you move through this journey you are discovering more it's it's a beautifully illustrated game and part of the reason it's interesting to me is because it's so light you really have to push yourself quite hard literally the the first thing you do you you place your token on the next location where you have a scene and then effectively Usually you have some form of story prompt, which may be a phrase or a word, go. And there's a part of me that feels almost anxious about that open a space. It's so beautiful and it replays much more enjoyably than you think, considering it's a map with set locations and paths you can choose and story prompts in most of those locations, it replays much more beautifully than you think, which is clearly why I'm thinking about reskinning it multiple times, including my, the latest one I'm working on is actually a Christmas edition where you go to rescue Santa, <laughs> who is stuck at the end of, you know, in Lapland and stuck, and you are the elves who have to. Uh, but anyway, it's... On a journey of self-discovery to rescue Santa. Yeah, you have to discover why you are rescuing Santa and whether you will actually rescue Santa <laughs> at the end or like give him a kick off a tall tree and, and say... <laughs> yeah, that is also an option. But yes, there are so many ways that such a simple set of mechanics can be reused and reskinned. But it's also just a really beautiful contemplative game that I really occasionally need a bit of downtime and just a beautiful journey. And it's just one of those games that they described it to me and then I just gave them my purse. So, <laughs> take my credit card. Don't tell me how, just take my credit card. So yes, that's my game that I've been trying to play more often. So the, the designer is Ross Kalman yes. of Fall of Magic. And I, I don't know this, but I read a post from him talking about his scroll factory. Yes. So he yes. actually has he, his own scroll cheap. factory where he produces these amazing. Yeah. It was cheap enough for him that he would just like he designed apparently designed a game so that he could uh, <laughs> sell the scrolls. Presumably. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And it actually is beautiful enough that you could hang it on a wall mm. as decoration. And there's actually a part of it where you get to a certain. It's not printed in a huge number of colours, but you get to. A certain location and then if you, you can either decide to cross the sea using a number of cards to decide where your next island is or you can go underground and at that point you actually flip the scroll over and it's printed on the back with the underground you know there's the underground sea and the salt lands and, and oh my god yeah. stranger things hack <laughs> oh my god, another the one to add on my list of... I have like five, five, five hacks of this I need to go. I don't have 
time to sleep. <laughs> so Eunice, thank you very much. And then finally, Lloyd Jan. Lloyd is Britain's leading Ghanaian GM. Lloyd joined the hobby originally to find friendlier white people. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that's come true. <laughs> No, no, has that come true? I say nothing. Okay. Uh, but his extensive years in the hobby have given him insight into the RPG industry that other people can only dream about. Now, we are actually very lucky to have Lloyd with us today because Lloyd went to Gen Con. Was it for the first time? Yeah. We're the first time this year. And hung out basically with the Indie Games On Demand crew there. So completely blew them away that he is now kind of like their god or something like that. <laughs> like, so basically he's got like, you know, Jason Warning stars like real phone number. <laughs> so as of next year, he will be officially too cool for this panel. So, Lloyd, oh. uh, what game is exciting you right now? I'm not kicking off the panel. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> that was a really nice way to do it, Richard. Well done. <laughs> wow! So, what, well, game you, what game are you excited about right now? Well, since this is my last year on the panel, <laughs> right? let's go a bit trad, shall we, everyone? No. Too late! I'm a maverick! So... Again, for another year, you're a maverick. <laughs> so, I have a theory about Fancy Flight games. There is, there is an indie person somewhere, somewhere in Fancy Flight, who has been chipping away at the crew, firing people, hiring people, because the mechanics they've been getting in have been changing more and more and more. And like, if you've seen the end of the World series that they made, the small little books, like, that's as indie as a trap game can get, pretty much. Like, it doesn't get any more than that. But, there was a game they released recently, which was The Legend of Five Rings, 5th edition, that I genuinely could not believe how well it was done. So, before we go into this, Legend of Five Rings is one of those games where you need to buy in, like 100%. You're playing Samurai in this mythical Asian world called Rockigan, and all the things that TV Asians have told us apply. <laughs> so, let's face facts, it's not going to be immediately accurate. So you have to bow, you have to, we offer you things, you have to reject it three times, you have to stay composed, you can't talk if someone else is talking, you put a fan in front of your mouth if you don't be able to read your lips, you have people above you, you have stations, you have all of these things that rank in. But never before has the game been able to have an emphasis on you keeping your cool until Fancy Flight did it. When you roll the funky dice they have, and yes, they do have funky dice, some of the successes have a mark on them called strife. It's entirely up to you if you want to use success or not. But if you're like, no, I want to succeed, I will use that success. You note the strife on your character sheets. If you collect too much strife, you reach a point where you cannot physically or emotionally or any kind of lead act in the scene to influence it unless you have a melting melting point a melting down melting point meltdown. Meltdown. A meltdown that's what i'm looking for a meltdown it can come in many ways you can you could just go i've had enough of your shits. let's fight right here you can go well that's fine it's a good thing your family's all full of cowards you can do anything you want you can just be like nope i'm done and just leave the scene but it's the first time i've seen fancy flight try to have a role play mechanic conjoined with a mechanic from an actual dice thing that kind of works really well for the world you're in. So you're trying to play these characters, you've got a goal, you've got to get somewhere, but you're building up strife because 
let's say you really don't like lawyers and you're having a Christian lawyer, and the more you're rolling, the more it's building up and it's getting worse and worse. And you're gonna realize that you're gonna reach a point where either you give in and just let them have what they want so you don't roll anymore or get interact anymore, or you just go, no, this is too much for me. I've lost it, let's fight to the death right now. And that is a fantastic mechanic to have in a trap game that like, you know, no one expects it from. And I really, I wish I could play that more. I wish more games had things where mechanics and storytelling melded in such a lovely, fun way that you could bring it out on both sides. It's just, it's, just, it's brilliant. Great, thank you so much, Lloyd. So now I'm gonna uh, go back down the line and ask our panelists about what trends or other things that are happening or that they've seen happening has kind of interested them this year. But very broadly, just in terms of kind of financial stuff and kind of games played, essentially 2018 has been all about powered by the apocalypse. And you're like, how is that different from previous years? <laughs> well, it's even more so this year than previous, uh, the last year. And a lot more, even to the point where we're getting second editions coming out of things like Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts of Monster of the Week. There is obviously potentially another you know, Star Wars kind of like hushed tone thing, maybe called Forged in the Dark, but we'll have to see in 2019 if that's a real contender. So, Rob, uh, what kind of trend or other thing that's happened this year is uh, taken your interest? Yeah, so I want to start by just picking up on that uh, PDTA thing, because last year at this seminar, I complained that people were hopelessly misusing PBTA in genres that was inappropriate in totally inappropriate ways. Unnecessarily powered by the apocalypse. Unnecessarily powered or by the apocalypse or depowered by the apocalypse <laughs> to something useful. And an interesting ha thing happened this year that scares me a lot because apparently the PBTA designers heard me <laughs> and this year the designs were a lot better. <laughs> Vagabonds of David was really good at mixing up mini systems and taking approaches, not getting hung up on playbooks, but allowing people to take moves and mix them up how they see freely, using advantage and disadvantage instead of really complicated modifiers, conditions, and carry forwards. So before I get onto my trends, I'm willing to take bribes from the audience with this awesome power I now possess to correct anything in story games that annoys you. If there's anything you just want me to fix, I'll, we'll, I'll we'll save it for Q&A at the end. Save it for we'll the Q&A we'll because oh, I have the power now. So yeah, I think the, the key thing for me this year is if you look down at the sheet, there's loads of 2E there. There is loads of second editions and it, it's interesting to think that lots of people regard these games as kind of experimental niche emergence. But Jason Morningstar has been describing what he wants to do with a second edition of Fiasco for next year, which is the 10 years of the original publication of Fiasco. And that's a, a long time. And if you think about the way that we've evolved and learned and picked up about these games, it's really interesting that there's this whole wave of reinvention. And do, do you think you'll like it this time? No. So this, <laughs> this, is the, this is the other point that I learned this year, is that everyone in their second editions, apparently what I thought was great about their game and should be emphasised and everything that I thought was rubbish and should got rid of, they doubled down on the stuff that was rubbish and minimised the stuff that is good. So Fiasco's second edition is exactly the same problem. <laughs> you have an awesome generation phase and then you're just told to create a game. And apparently, Jason, you're listening to this, I know from last year, I know you're listening to it. It's not good enough, Jason. You need to sort it out. You need a better introductory scene sequence in Fiasco Second Edition. Or oh, there's no point. There's just no point, Jason. Uh, Lloyd, can you have a word with Jason? Yeah. <laughs> Don't waste time. Do it. Don't waste time. Do it now. Do it now. 
while James is talking. <laughs> <laughs> he will interrupt me. <laughs> right, uh, so, we so, so right. second editions, but second editions that don't really solve the problems of the games that they are second editions of. Cool. All right, thank you, Rob. James? Well, I'm not going to reflect bitterly on the past here. <laughs> I'm going to look forward to the future, which is also the past, unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on what you view. As you have seen, we had this fantastic wave of really inventive, free-form, GM-less games. Everybody embraced this. You don't have to have a character sheet. You don't have to have dice. You can just go out there and create a game at the table. So now that's turning around. Now people are going, actually, rules help. Having some rolls in the game really makes a difference when you can go, no, this is how many dice you roll here and here and here. Things like, again, the Spire, which is really solidly mechanically grounded. It says, don't just say, oh, you failed, let's discuss what the consequences of that. We're going to say, well, you failed on an economical based roll, so the penalty is going to be that you're short of cash next time. Or the penalty is going to be that that money lender you remember, he now wants to break your kneecaps. So I think we're seeing, I think we're seeing, a return to mechanics in indie games, but applied from the indie story games perspective. They serve a purpose. It's not just, well, we have to have an encumbrance system because that's what games have. It's just, well, do we want an encumbrance system? Yeah, we do, but we want it to work like this. We want it to feed back into the story and reinforce it. So we're starting to see solid mechanics being re-embraced, I think, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. You can have really like any game design, you have really solid mechanics that reinforce the story and lead it forward and encourage the players to create more story, which is in that perfect look that you want. And you can still have the mechanics that hold things back and chafe and make people, oh, do we have to do it that way? That feels really bad, I don't want to do that. So yeah, I think we're starting to see like mechanics being encoded back into the story, but hopefully in a positive way to reinforce the story, to guide it, to support it, to give you like a solid foundation on which to build your own stories with that game system. Great, thank you James. Eunice? Unfortunately after James, I am still ridiculously focused in that tiny, tiny, like, GM-less rules light area, but now I'm going to add an extra niche on top of the niches <laughs> I've already added, because I, it's like niches all the way down. Um, in the rest of my life, I actually do a lot of organising and activism around probably what's known as like marginalized communities, organizing for various groups and community spaces and volunteering. And there is a big overlap there with gamers as well. Turns out gamers get everywhere. And there's this sort of solid core of, of gamers who keep going, this is an interesting game about experiences. You Boom. And then, oh, this is an interesting boom. And then, so the games that I've been mostly mostly had thrown at me, let's be more honest, mostly sort of come across had thrown at me, came to my attention, are ones that tend to have something interesting to say about social justice or marginalised groups or some kind of socio-political, I did say niche on niche on niche, socio-political spaces. So again, this one also came out a couple of years ago, but I actually only got it this year. So I don't know if anyone's come across the hashtag feminism anthology. Yeah, I see some nods there. It's an anthology of nano games written by or for feminists or around feminism or female experiences. And it's really they have different games sort of in under different topics and streams with the games getting kind of more intense as you go through each chapter so it's it's sort of they tell you 
all the normal things that games would tell you know how long it's likely to play how many how many players or that sort of thing but also the intensity that the average sort of gaming group is likely to experience and it tends to veer into the kind of I think what's called the I heard it called the freeform style which is you know maybe you don't necessarily always sit down at the table or maybe if you're LARPing you spend some time sitting at the table <laughs> there's a bit of a blurry line between the LARP side of gaming and the tabletop side of gaming and you maybe can merge that and there's a bunch of really interesting games sort of in that space that are also in some really interesting experiences another one that I actually got for one of my partners because I thought she'd find it hilarious is a game called A Cozy Den and it's a game where you are all lesbian snakes half lesbian half snake and you are getting together to form yourself a lovely cozy den over winter there are mechanics for cuddling this is a wonderful game the sort of game that you can just play that will maybe give you a little bit of downtime from the horror that is this world right now and occasionally i need a bit of like just just give me a little bubble where it's just lovely lovely people and we cuddle and we try to like maintain a nice space for each other and keep warm over over winter and the more the more lesbian snakes there are the more we stay warm like that's literally the point of the game uh, it's great and on the flip side of that the other game that also interested me in the space which i've got my hands i have not played and i am desperate to play but it seems like i can't find anyone to play with me right now because i keep playing with newbies in indie meat is winterhorn and that's by Jason Morningstar as well. And this is a game where you are playing the authority or the government who are trying to, I guess, deactivate or, you neutralize. know, neutralize. That's the word I was call neutralize peace activists. And it gives you these kind of mechanics that governments in real life actually use. And it's almost like a workshop on how likely like how quickly do you turn to violence pacifists activists all that stuff oh yeah no just set them on fire there is a certain sort of hey you're an activist play this game and see exactly how quickly it can devolve and how easy it is to start seeing people who don't have the power you do as a threat as the enemy and how and the sort of tools you can use to take them down. So yeah, these are these are the sort of games that I'm kind of getting thrown in that trend have right you, now. Have you looked at Sigmata at all? Mm. So Sigmata, the, the signal kills fascists. I mean, I, I don't know anything about it. I assume from the title it's political. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been thrown out. I need to make a note of that. No, but the, uh, yeah, I, I don't know anything about it apart from this like alternate 80s where the government really were bastards. But Winterhorn itself is interesting partly because of course it places the players in the roles of the government trying to, as Rob puts it, kind of neutralize this, the, this kind of activist group, but also because of the amount of research that, that went into it. Whereas, I, I don't know how true this is, but I hear that it is being used as a, like a teaching tool for activist yes. groups to understand how they might be attacked. There is actually uh, documents on the website that you can download to turn it into a workshop. Yeah. And apparently every single tactic that they list in the game is a tactic that the government has actually used, including violence. 
Okay, chilling vision of things to come. Thank you, Eunice. Cuddling <laughs> <laughs> and totalitarianism. Right, <laughs> sorry. Lloyd. How am I supposed to follow that? Like, what so, let's start with a weird statement. In the last few years, board games have, more, have had more innovative mechanics and styles than role-playing games. Let's face facts. That's how it is. We've become stagnant when it comes to mechanics, when it comes to rules, everything else. We can do our, oh yeah, GM-less, narrative-fully driven, but we've done all that stuff before. It's really hard to find something that brings something new inside. Which is why when a game company or a game per people or any other thing comes up with a different way, even if it's small, to do different things, we first go crazy and then we accept it. I will mention Fancy Fred again, they're not paying me. Yeah. <laughs> are you, but are you interviewing for them? I'm not, no. <laughs> yet. Yeah. Until they hear the podcast. <laughs> but they generally tried to do something different when they came up with Warhammer Fancy 3rd edition with the cards. Then they tried something different with Genesis and they tried it again with their system for Legend of Five Rings. And it made me realize that I'm getting really sick and tired of using numbered dice to resolve things. <laughs> like, fine, we all want to do GM-less or stuff like that, but some of us, I, I really like mechanics. I like mechanics that interact with people. And the problem with dice is that no matter what happens, if you're like in the middle of intensity, you're looking at each other, you're being careful, and then you pick up the dice, and then you roll the table, and you're looking at numbers, and then you're comparing numbers. And I feel if we found a way to make mechanics blend in with that, some other mechanic doesn't work with that, I understand. Which is why I got to play test a game this year called Zephyr, which is done by the same guys who are doing Nibiru, they're downstairs, Federico Sons, he's brilliant, love him. But the game is based on your memories and your activities and the skills you have, and it's on a sheet that has like rips on it. So whenever you want to do something and it's important to you, you grab that, you rip it off, you literally lose that skill forever, you put it down and you get that thing done. Never tell me the odds is a game that recently hit Kickstarter as well, where you have your character sheet, you have all your skills you have, but if you're like, no, I am willing to stake this part of my ability or this part of my love or this part of my relationship on this, you just pick up a, what's called a coin and you flip it 50-50, last the way you want, you get what you want and you're done. We need more fun mechanics than just dice, people. We need to break out of the D20 standard, the here are my skills, here are my, here are my talents, here are my feats, here is my, I don't know, whatever you want, just you've got to break out of that. And I'm loving that this year, I've already seen three games that are breaking out of that shell. Maybe next year, if we're really lucky, there'll be a game where, I don't know, you win by blinking. Oh, I don't like we like that used to be the thing that like indie games came strong, and then we had this Power by Apocalypse thing, which is still great, and I love it. Buy masks, it's fantastic. <laughs> but the more I see more interesting mechanics, use cards, do monkey, buy that, do any of the other things that I want, but bring us more mechanics that isn't just I roll dice on the table and I look at numbers. That's all I'm asking. And this year, I've seen three games that means that I have hope for the future. It's going to be great in 2019 when half of these games release and we're all doing it and we have this wonderful indie revival thing again. It's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. I love it. Great. Well, thank you, Lloyd. Is that, I think there are a couple more games coming through that may interest you. Obviously, Starcross. Yes. So, which is Dread, like, like sexy Dread. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's what, that's what was missing from Dre. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, also on this list as well, storied yarns, which is uh, you resolve by knitting. <laughs> there is such an audience I need to make it in night of Okay, so those are the trends that we... <laughs> Somebody's holding up weave. Excellent, thank you. We're already there. Right. Uh, there's been Chronicles of Yarnia before. Chronicles of Yarnia. It's a knitting RPG. Yeah. Okay. Right. So those are the games that are exciting the panel at the moment. The, the, the trends that they're seeing happening. But now it's open for you guys to ask questions. So, do we have any questions from the audience? It's not a question, but a request for Ross Power. Right, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> use your power to destroy unnecessary Kickstarter stretch goals. Mm -hmm. Use your power to destroy Kickstarter Ooh. stretch goals. Unnecessary. Unnecessary, sorry. Well, I mean, there's an argument that every stretch goal is unnecessary, right? I mean, like, just do the goddamn thing that you're proposing to do. You know, it's like... Oh, I could do this other awesome thing, but, you know, like... <laughs> I need to get enough money. Right, how, how much did you spend on a corner Kickstarter again? <laughs> oh, oh. oh there's, a more, there's a more, there's a more oh. embarrassing story about that Conan Kickstarter in that I have no room for the books, and I never collected the books. <gasps> I I lost my mind completely on that one. I like, have no idea. I had no idea why I would thought I would like it. I don't have space to store the books. It's yeah, that's stupid. Right, thank so, you. Another question. Kickstarter. No, so I, I, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. Stretch goals, trading creators. You don't really need them. Yeah. Stop doing that, kids. Take time off it. Interested to hear about Strife uh, in National Five Rings, which to me is very reminiscent of personality traits in Pendragon, to be honest. What I'm interested in is, for the members of the panel, which mechanic or aspect of a game do they find is the one that most pushes and rewards the players to deliver what the game is supposed to deliver. In that way that Strife says, you know, you're a samurai, you're gonna flip out. What I'm interested in is what they found is the mechanic or artifact that absolutely delivers on the intent of the game in the most enriching way. So if I can just repeat your question to get it on the recording, so which mechanic or aspect of the game most delivers and pushes the players to do what the designer wants them to do with this game? Well, I mean, here we go again, guys. Masks. Masks. Yeah, I know. Masks is a game where you play teenage superheroes. Blah, blah, blah. Put them in a power up his back. Done. But when you take damage, you mark a condition. And your condition can be angry, afraid, insecure, guilty, or hopeless. You can clear these by talking to someone to get it down and relax. But you can also clear these by doing specific things within them. For example, if you're angry, if you break something important, you clear it. If you're hopeless, if you're guilty, if you give yourself for self-sacrifice, you, you break out of it. If you're insecure, if you throw yourself into easy relief, like, I don't know, go smoke some weed or something, kids, it will get you, don't actually smoke weed, kids. It will actually get you, it will get those things cleared. And it, it brings out this idea about, I mean, because like, your kids, it's not about, you know, actually being beaten up by super. It was about you not having control of your emotions and your emotions get in your way of you being a hero. And that's one of the things I put into that. So, I mean, whenever you say the best, it's always like subject to... The one that I think has worked in most circumstances, the one in Lady Blackbird, which is kind of based off Yesterday's Shadows, which is the key in the secret. And basically the idea that you get rewarded for acting according to a mode, but you also get rewarded for, for burning it off and breaking it and turning your back on it. So, for example, that, uh, you know, 
I'm going to win the love of the princess or the pirate captain or whoever it is. But I also get rewarded for saying, I'm over it. I'm over them. They're not worth it. I'm moving on. I'm going to find something else in my life. And it means that at the start of the game, everything kind of moves. You're encouraged to move along certain patterns and archetypes. But at any point later in the game, you can switch it, turn it on its head, go in a different direction. I've always liked that one. I thought it was really good. I'm going to answer a bit more generically, because um, there are a number of games that do this, which I find really effective. Any rule mechanics which cope with trust and betrayal between the player characters because I'll tell you, any game I've ever played the player's already motivated to mess with each other that's already there so if you've got a mechanic that piggybacks on top of that and says well when you do this to the other player characters you will be either penalised or rewarded for it that really reinforces what your game is about I actually think there's a couple of designers that actually make me think of that whenever I see a book by them or a game by them rather, my instinctive first reaction is gimme 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 because I know that there's probably going to be something interesting there. Like Ben Robbins, uh, when he first came out with Microscope, this was obviously so different. When he came out with Follow and the mechanic where you put these tokens into a bag and you don't know whether you'll draw out a success or failure because people are putting in However, like they put in a success or failure secretly into the bag. And so the more group successes you expect to have, the more likely you are to succeed as a group, obviously. But it's a secret. It's a sort of secret voting, as it were, which makes for some really interesting twists when you empty the bag out later, you go, who just put five red tokens in here? And no one speaks up. Or someone like, Avery Older, who does some really interesting games that speak to that kind of marginalized community space. And I think it's belonging outside belonging is the space that it, but she has some really interesting stuff that emphasizes those sorts of experiences. So yeah, I, I think in my case, it's more certain designers just make me go, ooh. So just to, yeah, just to follow yeah. on from the Avery Older one quickly, one thing I've always liked in the Quiet Year is the contempt mechanism when yeah. if you play a genuinely quiet year and the only way of getting a sense of what people are feeling is to look at those tokens and see, see you know, when you say something and people, people put tokens down or you say something else and you see people take it up. Really yeah, I like that. I also, I played it just earlier and it seems like one group ended up being the we are just going to crash and burn this community and <laughs> if you do have that not that I'm looking at anyone particular, if you do have that then there is a slight risk as we ended up with everybody dying so, so there, there are ways for so, it to so I'll just mention to one of them game I already mentioned Dread I know there are a lot of controversy around using using Jenga and a dexterity game as, as part of it but the game I've had of it is just amazing emotional roller coaster because it does in the beginning you feel empowered you're pulling blocks no matter what the GM asks you and then increasingly you are just left going do you want to do you want to go there no I don't want to pull a block <laughs> do you want to do you want to eat some food no I don't want to take a block do you want to do you want to leave the room no I don't want to pull a block and then when the tower falls and somebody dies and it's rebuilt you suddenly have this a huge emotional release and then when you're finally confronted with something that you can tackle as, as, as I was is it I was pulling is it the GM would say 
to do that. You need to pull three books. I don't care. I'm going to pull as many three books to kind of like to finally kind of vent all this kind of built up emotion. And the other one is Ribbon Drive. So Ribbon Drive also yeah. by Avery Elder. The, the aspect of it that I'm referring to is the fact that when you build your character, it's almost entirely just the two potential futures. It's a road trip game. Uh, and it's just about, you, you essentially just write your two potential futures of the character. The fact that that's all you really know about your character, all, all you've really defined about your character, means that as you go on this road trip, you inevitably talk about your, your, this life choice or your two potential futures that you have, which is the point of the game. So just by, simply by the, just defining a single thing about your character, inevitably means it's the focus, Steve. So almost like 2018 has been the year of Powered by Apocalypse. What do people think has been the worst abuse, abuse or misapplication of Powered by Apocalypse? Well, I'll just sit back. So the, the worst power, the worst misuse of wow. Powered by the Apocalypse, I'm just going to sit back and let Rob go. <laughs> For me, it's really interesting. Uh, Alas, the Awful Sea won some kind of award, I think. Most innovative abuse of the Powered by the Apocalypse system to make a terrible game out of something that's potentially really interesting, I think is the award that it won. Either that or indie RPG awards have lost their mind. I mean, that's still, for me, the absolute dregs of that particular genre. I'm not sure anything this year really beat it. I mean, it set a high bar. What about, uh, what about Cult, which has 10 stats and 2d10 instead of 2d6? So uh, Cult was a lot bigger than I thought it was. When it arrived, I thought it was, I, d I don't know, again, I don't know why I buy these things. <laughs> I went, oh, that's a really big book. I can't read that, it's too big. So I haven't got round to it, so I'll take your word for it, it's pretty bad. Okay, Lloyd, you have some? I have one. Blaze in the Dark. Ooh. Ooh. Come at me! Come at me! John Harper, if you listen to this, I love you. Everything you do is God. I have your telephone number. <laughs> Blades in the Dark. I'm sorry, it's literally too dark for me. It's way too dark. Everything is sad, everything is dreary. You're just slowly etching away to your inevitable doom. Everything you do is pointless. I'm sorry, I hate it. Scum and Philly, however, is <laughs> godlike. Sweet Jesus, what a great game. Please, God, I've never seen something completely divide me and make me want to buy it immediately. Anyway, thank you. Right, so did, did, did anybody else have it? I'm not even sure I can. Uh... I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put my neck in the noose here and shame any individual PPATA designers because, God, no, let's not go there. I mean, I've seen a couple this year that I felt were like, yeah, why did you use PPA to do that? It's like you've basically gone, here's some basic moves. There are 25 of them. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. you're missing the point there, I think. And yeah, yeah there's, there's been a couple that have been like, you could have just gone a different way with that, you didn't need to use PBTA, and if you're going to at least explain what your game is about, don't basically go, here's lots of really detailed moves, here's no guidance as to when to use them. Or, or here's yeah. 12 playbooks with yeah. uh, five from the stretch goals, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if you select any of them at random, they're going to produce a great game. Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition has been cited as having a lot of its success generated by Twitch streaming and like live streaming. What do you think makes a role-playing game particularly well-suited or poorly-suited for performatively engaging an audience who are not directly playing the game? Okay, what makes an RPG either well-suited or ill-suited for, for performing in front of an audience? Celebrities? <laughs> or porn stars? <laughs> I'm actually, Celebrity porn stars? That's been done. <laughs> I'm actually going to say it's mechanics that have some form of action based on them. Any kind of action adventure style, hey, we're doing stuff and then stuff happens.
happens, then stuff happens, then stuff happens will draw people in, which is something that you wouldn't think D&D could do. But, guys, when you're on that table and you're rolling 2d20, and a 1 in 1d20, like, my own game is my head, rolling 1d20, and then someone's rolling 1d20 and you're fighting and you're doing this and you're describing the actions, it's about things happening. People want to see and hear things happening, and that's what makes a podcast fun. So, put more action in your game, and maybe some more. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to, because obviously this going right back to this whole narrative heavy storytelling thing, I'm actually going to say one that's freeform enough so that you can make use of the creativity of the people sat there in the sense that you're bringing together these people specifically because you think that they will have a really great vibe together. Don't railroad them. Don't stick them in a plot that has to go a place. Which, I mean, we know that that's... We know that a good GM wouldn't. I'm just saying that a game that doesn't allow you to railroad them, because I know that when I'm playing, the times I have most fun are when I do something that maybe was not exactly planned by the game designers as a, you know, this is probably not the way we intended for you to deal with this Lovecraftian Cthulhu horror thing which was hire the Mafia to go salt the earth and concrete over the place. Okay, James, did you mean? No, I was serious about the porn stars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would just say one thing, asymmetric information. The reason poker was so amazing to watch when it's otherwise people sitting around at a table playing cards is because the audience can see, listen, I know what that player has and I know what that player has, but neither of them know what each other has. And so that makes me in a position of power more so than any of the people at the table. So if you can get a game that can in, uh, have role playing and also asymmetric information in there, I think that would be very interesting. I had a sudden thought about a game where like, the players don't know what location they're in and you just have someone going across the, across the room with like, and now they're in a dungeon. <laughs> and now they're in a random bar. And, and they don't audience know. Audience suggestions, got to, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the audience like, yeah. decides where they are. You've got to work out where you are. <laughs> so, that, I reach out my hand and hold something. Is it squishy? <laughs> <laughs> that is something I've seen done effectively, especially on Twitch, where the audience can bid yeah, yeah, on what yeah, happens absolutely. next. So, yeah, That's a great obvious. thing. Right, very quickly, because we've got to wrap up. The game that you're looking forward to in 2019. Rob? Yeah, so embarrassingly, the game I thought I was looking forward to was Troika Numinous, but it turns out that's just a second edition of Troika. <laughs> uh, it's just a rewrite. So, desperately, uh, last minute, I'm going Thousand Year Vampire, and I'm hoping that when it arrives, I go like, well, this was a stupid decision on my part. Why on earth did I do this? The granddaddy of Indian story games, Over the Edge, is getting another new edition. I'm really looking forward to it. It's like the first like gateway drug I was introduced to to get me into story games. So, yeah. Eunice. This is actually another one by Avery Older and Ben Rosenbaum. It's it kickstarted this year. It's two half, like two halves of game. So Dream Askew and Dream Apart, which are one booklet together. Dream Askew is about a queer community or queer enclave in a like apocalyptic wasteland, and you know you're coming together as community and surviving and Dream Apart is a sort of fantastical historical base where you are uh, playing Jews in a Strelt. I'm totally miss saying that, I apologise. Sure. Um, and sort of the mythologies in the Jewish tradition are in your world. And Lloyd, very quickly. There is an, what's called African-based role-playing game coming out called Bastion. 
based on a Mythic D6 system, and I'm really looking forward to it because for the first time ever, it takes place within my clan, and my accent is key. No one can do it better than I can. <laughs> no one! All right, thank you all for coming. That was awesome.